We Are DB. I'm Danielle, joined as always by Brenton. Hey there. Thanks for joining us for our honorable mention this month as we take the opportunity to talk about a great film that just missed out on being on IMDb's list of the best movies of all time. This month rated at 7.9 out of 10 on the Internet Movie Database by millions of film lovers from around the world is Dunkirk. Released in 2017, starring Tom Hardy and Killian Murphy, Dunkirk is a war drama set between May 26th and June 4th of 1940. Based on the evacuation of Allied soldiers who were surrounded by the German army and isolated at the beaches and harbor of Dunkirk, France, Dunkirk is written, produced, and directed by Christopher Nolan. The movie was nominated for eight Oscars, and it won three. Do you know what they were for? I think they were technical achievements, um, like sound editing and visual editing, those sort of things. Hmm. Um, There was also a previous movie called Dunkirk that was made in 1958 starring Richard Attenborough, depicting the same evacuation events. But this one, it's not a remake of that original Dunkirk movie. It's just a, a reinterpretation. Retelling of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think 7.9 is kind of low for this. I don't think it's Yeah, it that. was in the top 250 for quite a while, and I think only in the last few months it's been dropped down. Interesting. So here we are again talking about Christopher Nolan. What is this like? And a the war movie. Sixth? <laughs> yeah, and a war movie, yeah. So Nolan has the highest percentage of his filmography in the top 250, uh, more than any other director, which is kind of amazing. And we'll be talking about it again very soon on the list uh, with Memento. So if you want to hear us talk more about Nolan as a director and the way he approaches things, go listen to the many episodes we have covered Inception, Interstellar, Dark Knight, Prestige, and we do a lot of deep dives into those great movies because they're all on the list. And this this one, I think, deserves to be in the list because it used to be, um, and that's why it's an honorable mention this month. This is another one. I think I think I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to judge movies. Like I'm judging books by their cover kind of thing. So you thought this would be a a heavy slog of a war movie. Yeah, because it it's a World War 2 movie which are always hard heavy. to watch, yeah. Plus it was Christopher Nolan. Yeah. I remember you said to me, I'm like, this is a a Nolan war movie. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Just for how much I thought it was going to be requiring investment. But I think what happens is that I keep having to remind myself after I finish watching a Nolan movie that he's actually very good at what he does. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like this was he plays with time. Of course, he does. It's his signature thing. It really is. But it was... It was done in a way that as a single storyline it flowed, but as separate storylines, you were still able to follow it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was done very well. As war movies go, like you said, they can be heavier. But even when I was describing it to you, I'm like, okay, I understand there's a war movie and it's a Nolan, and sometimes you've got to be in the right mindset to go diving into his sort of work. But it's not like Schindler's List or The Pianist. It's more like 1917, and that's what I said to you, because 1917 is a brilliant movie that's constructed in a particular way, 
And yes, there can be hard to watch elements of it, but generally it's very enjoyable movie experience. And I think Dunkirk is very much in lines with the feeling of 1917 than it does with some other hard-hitting war movies. And the distinction I would make around why 1917 and Dunkirk are different from other war movies is that these movies, like those other mo- those other movies, say um, Schindler's List or um, Saving Private Ryan or anything kind of like that, those are movies about the war. These are movies that happen to be set in during the mm, war. They're more you like human I mean? stories. Yeah. In that setting. Yeah, okay. I mean, Casablanca in particular is one that really is not about the war at all, really, and happens to be set during the war. Yeah. These movies, it's still a central focus. However, it's not like there's other things that are brought to the forefront more than the fact that that you're looking at soldiers fighting in World War Two or World War One. I. I feel like every great director always has to have their war movie at some point in their career in their filmography they always do a war movie if you think about it's like it like a rite of passage or yeah something. I, unless yeah. you're like spielberg where you have to do like seven because <laughs> he's done so many but like look at every other director you got nolan you got sam mendez did 1917 hell even quentin tarantino did one with inglorious bastards you know yeah. um like even francis ford coppola we did apocalypse now last month um, hell, even like Peter Jackson, who did Lord of the Rings, he did that World War One documentary recreation. Oh, like they've yeah. always, you name a director, they've probably done a war movie. Wes Anderson. <laughs> I'm just yanking your chain. You know, Grand Budapest Hotel was a war movie. It was set during World War Two. It showed the before and after effects of that war. So yes, he has done a war movie. Well, there you go. Like, that's interesting just, that you just, I like, ha curveball, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you think about it and you've watched his filmography, every uh, every great hmm. director, I would say, has to had do this sort of thing. Um, it's just kind of interesting, yeah. Hmm. There's no real plot to this. I mean, the plot is telling the events of how the British were saved there, from Dunkirk. Yeah, but there's no story, like, there's no... This is, like, how this character got drafted, and then the, like, stuff he's gone through, and now you're trying to, mm. like, the point. Like, it really is, like you said, it's it's just showing the events through the eyes of a couple of particular people. But it's not really about those people, you know? I really quite like this story, and I'm glad that it's, like, a true story that a lot of British people know this story. You know, this is a big win for them in the story of World War Two, mm. And I'm glad Nolan got to tell it. Because, because I think it's an important... It's an uplifting story, like, if you think about it. Mm. And I think the way he approached it with the three timelines is very unique. And I don't think any other director would have brought that to, the, to this story. I think he needed to tell it. Yeah, it's one of those, for sure. Is this an important movie? It's not one where... Like, Schindler's List is an important movie, but it's kind of, it's leaning more toward that than it's not, I think. Yeah. I think it's amazing that the Germans actually got so far. They were, like, really, they were a force to be reckoned with. And I think it's even more amazing that the English held them off. Like, they were at the channel. Mm. And they were all anticipating 
there to be an invasion of England. You know, um, the Battle of Britain is what they're thinking. But, man, you got to kind of respect them to be able to hold off the Germans after what the Germans had already accomplished. And that's sort of the overlying thing that's in everyone's mind throughout this whole movie is they're all pretty convinced that there will be a battle on home soil sort of thing. And this is the last bit of before that mainland Europe that the Germans haven't taken yet, and they will take it. So that's in the back of everyone's mind, and I think that's what's interesting is this they're showing their perseverance throughout all of that. You know, they're putting up a fight even if they think that the end is sort of near, if that makes any sense. I'm just thinking this is relatively early in the war, too. This is 1940. Was it? Yeah. That's, that's very what you early said. to get that far through. Yeah. Like France. France kind of got fucked right off the hop. Oh, yeah. Well, they surrendered. That was kind of the thing, um, because France are like, hey, we can surrender or we can get really fucked. We can get semi-fucked or really fucked. So they they surrendered. Um, I I don't really blame them for that. What do you do? That just must have made everything so much harder for Britain because that was like it was such an easy channel like i'm not meaning like the channel made things easier you know what i mean like that you could access europe so quickly so you would have had to fly things in like how do you get anything how do you get tanks into europe how do you get supplies into europe if you can't go through france well i think they did go through france didn't they yeah but how do you continue to after this if it's occupied by germany i'm not sure i think they went through the mediterranean so that's just a lot more work. That's what it, I'm it saying. Is. It is. I could be wrong there, but I'm pretty sure that they did. Um, the movie sort of makes the channel seem really close. And it kind of is at points. I think the smallest distance is like 50 kilometers, which is yeah, really quite close. Because we, when we were in Europe, we crossed it on a ferry. And how long did it take? It was like oh, an hour. Yeah. It wasn't very long at all. People have swam it, so it can't be that long, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, the point is... It's not like going from Japan to China. And I'm just thinking, like, as someone who lives in England, like, how terrifying must it have been to know that the war is, like, right there? Yeah, and they they did bomb England. So oh, they, yeah, They were and seeing London. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they just didn't have troops on the ground yet. No, it's just because for me as a North American learning about it you always think oh it's so far away it's in europe that's a whole ocean away or you as an australian a little bit different because australia was more involved in the asian and mediterranean parts of the war and australia was bombed as well but but even then that's still quite far away you know but for england like it's right there which is why i I I was saying it's very impressive for to know that like this happened in 1940 and you held them off for the next five years. Yeah. And the stuff that the English actually achieved throughout the war was actually really impressive. Because they had a lot of breakthroughs and things. Um, I guess everyone mm. sort of had their hand in that. But um, there was a movie that came out like within six months of this movie. Mm. And it had Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill. And he won the Oscar That's for his performance. That's an interesting pick. I'd like to see him depicted. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the story timeline sort of overlapped. I haven't seen that movie. But I imagine it would make for a very interesting double feature. It would have been interesting if they cut to a shot in Dunkirk 
of Winston Churchill and it's Gary Oldman dressed as him. So it's like a tie over between the two movies. Mm. It's just interesting that movies like this always sort of just pop up at the same time that it's covering the exact same thing. You know what I mean? Mm. I just think, like, I wonder, could you put together the whole course of World War II in media, like in movies and TV shows? Probably, yes. That'd be really cool. Like, between things like... I don't know how accurate that would be, because it's been constructed and yeah, left but certain I mean, things out. And... But I wonder if you could put it all together to at least, like, have people talking about these certain events, you know? Like, to have... You have all of these shows and movies at your disposal that you could pull from that would talk about... You know, there might be a scene that someone's listening to the radio talking about this particular invasion or this particular... So you could do like a hundred hour super cut of all these movies. That's what I mean. Yeah. Interesting idea. It's like um, comprising the six years worth of events into a single thing directed by everyone. (laughs) Yeah. What was the one with with, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in it about Alan Turing? What was that one? Uh, The Imitation Game. Right, there's that one, and then there's all these, yeah. It would be interesting. Also, I didn't realize since last time we did an Olden movie, which was The Prestige, um, I thought I knew and had seen all of Nolan's filmography. There's a movie with Robin Williams and Al Pacino directed by Christopher Nolan. I've never seen it. It's called Insomnia. It's from 2002. Like, I have a box set of all of Christopher Nolan's work in 4K, and it's mm. just not in there. Hmm. And I have everything else, and it's like, okay, um, I wish they'd add that in there so I could see it. Apparently it's good, it's rated really highly on the IMDb, but that's kind of weird. Hmm. How many movies has he done? Ten. Ten, and Tenant will be eleven, where he's written and directed a foot feature film. He's, others that he's worked on, of course, but... So I've seen 9 out of 10 and I've never heard of Insomnia. It's so strange. So do you want to get on to, into talking about the movie now? So we're going to go yes. into spoilers from this point forward. So one of the main techniques that Nolan uses in this is the three timelines, uh, which I, th- I was saying before, I think it's very unique. Mm. It can be very confusing, but it's very Nolan. You, you have to kind of get your head around it. And after watching it just once... I think it's really quite easy to follow and and it flows really quite well. I think it's really brilliant the way certain events just like tie into each other and you see the ending of an event before you see the beginning of it quite a bit, which is really well well done. And with this particular movie, he, he lays it out for you pretty well. Like it's very segregated in that he labels one week before. So the mole was one week. One week before, and it has you're only following certain characters, and then one day before, and you're only following certain other characters. The sea was one day, and then the air was one hour. Yeah, I think it's done quite well in that, even though it's separated, he makes it quite easy for you as an audience to to separate it for yourself. Yeah, there are definite straight. characters that are only seen in each of the timelines. Whereas, like, in The Prestige, you're jumping around all over the fucking place. Yeah, with the same characters, so you're like, oh, Exactly. What? What? <laughs> and there's not really any indication of time passage 
Yeah. In there, whereas this, he makes it quite easy. And I think if you got too creative with it, you would lose the essence of the story. Like, again, in The Prestige, it was like a character piece, whereas this, it's not really about the people. The people are kind of a vessel to tell about the event. The event is kind of the main thing. I remember someone saying that when they watched this, they thought Mole was a person and not like the, it's like the jetty that's at the beach. Yeah. It's that sort of little peninsula thing. Um, But they thought that it was like, oh, this person's a mole and they're following along with it because it coincided with him finding the French guy who doesn't talk for ages. So they thought for the longest time throughout this movie that this guy was German because he's the mole, you know, like he's an infiltrated spy sort of thing. Um, and that really threw him off, so that can be yeah. a little confusing because people don't generally call that a mole. If you're paying attention, it is said, like it is explicitly said that that's what the name of it that does. jetty is. Yeah. But if you're not paying attention, you could easily And there's a few it. things that can be hard to hear. Um, yeah. But definitely the second time watching it, it's really quite interesting to watch the three timelines and almost all Nolan movies require a second watch. Mm. Watching it again, because this is the second time I've seen it, you see things like, you both see the civilian boat leaving while at the same time it's getting ready. Like, these these events are happening at the same time. You can see them, because it looks like a separate boat, because I'm like, oh, this boat is out in the ocean already. It's already doing these things. And then it cuts to it them getting ready. It must be a different boat. Yeah. Yeah. So it's happening at the same time, which can throw you off. And that's why it can be confusing, but... When you watch it a second time, you're like, oh, it's constructed really well. It is, and it also makes it more interesting to watch because it... You're kind of watching out for every little detail. You are, and the thing is, it gives you just enough dramatic irony that it keeps you invested, but not so much that it makes you roll your eyes. I've always loved the idea of telling a story and then telling it again from a completely different side or completely re-seeing the story that you've just been told from a different light just because you've been told this one little bit of information. Um, I always found that interesting with stories and novels and things when I would read when I was a kid. Which this totally does so well. Yeah. You know, like it, there's a couple different instances where ships get bombed. That's, I don't think that's really a spoiler. Like, it's the war. We're in spoilers. <laughs> um, but there's a couple of different instances where ships get bombed, and you see them, you see it from the perspective of the people in the ship, of the perspective of the people in a different boat, in the perspective of the people in the planes. Yeah. And I think with the one, I think you actually see it more than three times. Yeah. Like, you know. I think you're right. I think there's three or four times that you get to see that same ship get bombed. But it's from a different angle every time, and it feels different every time, which is the kind of the... Yeah. Because anyone can show the same thing three times, but for it to feel different, and you're adding a bit of information every single time you do watch it, that's what's really constructed quite well. And towards the end of those shots, there's a, there is that camera where it's fixed on the ship that's sinking, and you can sort of see the water coming in on an angle. Um, that's kind of a really interesting visual. You know what I'm talking about? I think so. And the thing that I really like is how much variation in emotion and investment there is for each different perspective. Because you watch from the air, 
you can't really hear the explosion, so it makes it very removed and sterile. You know oh, what I mean? Oh, there's great use of sound in this. Um, yeah. This and Interstellar are some of, like, Hans Zimmer's best. He obviously did the score for this, and he's very quickly becoming my favorite movie composer. Yeah. And a lot of this isn't even really music. A lot of it's, like, sort of shrieking sounds. Interstellar's very much like that as well, where it's just sort of these creepy ambient sounds, but they're really well done. And there's obviously the ticking of the time, which is at different paces between the different timelines. Oh, he does that. He does it all the time in all his movies. He did that on the black hole Water planet with the big waves. Yeah. yeah in Interstellar. And it just, it drives me crazy because it's not totally subconscious, but it's like secondary to what yeah, you're Yeah, it keeps doing. you on the edge of your seat. And do you know what it reminds me of, actually? Like it, something in the real world that creates the same feeling in me. One of those pendulums that tick on a, no, on a piano? What's that called? Metronome. Metronome. No, it's something in real life that creates a very similar feeling of anxiety in me is being at McDonald's trying to talk to somebody and all the fucking alarms are going off in the background. <laughs> it's a weird analogy. It is, but it's like that to me is like, because you're not focusing on that sound, but it's very much present and it's very much like grabbing your attention. It's interesting to note that the ticking... Once all the three timelines are actually synced, because they're all leading up to a single point, right? When it when it says one week, one day, one hour, it's from a point. And when those points are synced up, the ticking stops. Does and it's it? very abrupt. Yeah, because there's all these ticking. And then once they're synced, stops. And it's kind of interesting use of sound there as well. See, and I never consciously registered that i only registered that ticking sound at one point i don't even remember what it was i didn't realize it was present through the whole movie i don't think it is present through the whole movie but there are certain elements on each of the timelines where it is present Mm. seeing that to me like is just again i've been gaining such an appreciation for filmmaking because when you're filming that like you'd have to have that in mind but it's not there you know, like, you have to go yeah. to your sound guy afterwards and say, okay, add this stuff in. Like, you'd have to have so much storyboarded and just, like, organized in your mind around how it's going to come together, you know? You'd have yeah. to have... I feel like you'd have to have a whole picture before you could get anywhere. Well, you should. Before you start, you should have a pretty good idea of what you're doing. Um, you know what I learned since we did the Interstellar episode? That when they're on that planet, each one of the ticks represents one day passing on Earth. And I think that adds a level of just like, fuck, holy shit. Like when you actually realize that's how much time has passed while they're on this planet. Um, I think that's just brilliant use of sound. Like he's not really a music composer. He's a sound composer. You know what I mean? Like he, I really love the sound use um, that Hans Zimmer working with Christopher Nolan can can do i would love to get that soundtrack just to listen to yeah because like when you watch the behind the scenes of how they actually did it and the lengths they actually went to to mm. record that music like it's it's gorgeous i'd love to see him live actually as dorky as that sounds Hans him alive it's just it's hard because like for that particular 
soundtrack and score, you would never get the same feeling again unless you played it on the same organ. I'm pretty yeah. sure that was like the the largest organ in Britain or something mm. is that they recorded that on. So like you'd never get that again with something different. It kind of you know. reminds me of the soundtrack, even though it's very different, to Arrival, where they were using, like, whale yeah. song and, like, really deep bass sort of things playing through in the background, and it's creepy as hell, but it's, like, elegant. It's, like, it's calming. Yeah, but it raises your hairs, you know, it keeps you on the edge in a calming way. <laughs> There's something familiar about it, but just not familiar enough to make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we've spoken about sound a fair bit. I've been talking a lot about sound. Anyway, the point I was making was that I thought it was really cool how much there was variation between the different perspectives in, in how much you became invested in what you were seeing on screen. So, like, obviously, if you were watching from the perspective of being a person in the sinking ship, it's a lot more exhilarating and scary whereas if you're watching from the perspective of another boat you see it and you're alarmed but you're not as alarmed and then if you see it from the perspective of someone in an airplane it's jarring but you're pretty removed from it because you don't even hear mm. the sounds of what's happening you know what i mean so like the use of sound and how that relates to emotion and how that's conveyed like, it's just, I thought it was really well done in it, and it creates this dimensionality, I don't know if that's a word, this <laughs> dyna dynamicism of around each of these scenes that makes them so round, and you can understand, like, pretty much everything about what happened, because you're seeing it from all these different perspectives. Well, I was actually talking to you about something else the other day about how if you really want to communicate something, you have to do it from multiple different ways. You can't just do it yes. from one, two-dimensional, here you go. I what think were we, we, were talking, we were talking about the graphs that are used to represent growth rate of the coronavirus. Yeah, so if you just w watch one, you don't get the full picture, but if you look at many different data points or many different graphs... You get a full picture as to what's actually happening and the growth rates and yeah. stuff. You can't just look at one because you get a mis misleading sort of information. Well, you you just it's like looking through a very, very small window at a very particular piece of a very large puzzle, mm. you know? It's similar when I do diagrams for clients. You kind of need to do detailed drawings of showing many different conceptual things. You can't just show it in one diagram. That's how I do it at work. Yeah. Something that I took away from watching Inglorious Bastards, actually, from Tarantino from years ago, um, he was saying World War II was kind of one of the only major conflicts where physically the enemy doesn't look different from you. Yeah. And it's weird to think about that. And I'm like, he's, he's kind of right. So it was kind of the only war where you could infiltrate the enemy and they wouldn't really know by looking at you. And he explores yeah. that, obviously, in Inglorious Bastards. Um, and apart from an English guy having an accent, they're not really suspicious of him. And that's what Tarantino was kind of exploring. And that's kind of what's shown in this as well with the French guy. They don't know if he's English. They don't know if he's French. They don't know if he's German. Just by looking at him, they have to listen to him. And I, th I just think that's a unique thing that I hadn't really thought of before. Yeah. Um, 
I didn't remember that the French guy actually died in this. It's kind of sad because he was he was saving the Englishman. He saved everyone's asses more like, than way I remember more than from first watching it. And like I didn't pick up on that a whole lot when I first watched it, but this time around I'm like, "Oh, he saved your life three or four times." And they they kind of treat him like shit because a they don't know that he's doing these things, but he also dies in the end and no one even noticed. Well, and to me it was really sad because like he was so close. Like he was I yeah. think he he couldn't reach the ladder because of the downpull of the water that yeah. was pouring in. And so I think he was only like six inches away from like he just couldn't reach it. He was so close. Yeah, it was sad. And he was just someone trying to like just doing the very human thing of trying to get away from danger. Yeah, he was just trying to get by in every one of the scenes, you know. They all sort of were. Yeah. That was kind of the overarching message. It's kind of weird casting to cast Harry Styles in this. I think he was fine, but yep. a little unnecessary. I wonder why they chose that. Again, it's kind of like, it's one of those, I was glad to see that me knowing who he was didn't impact or distract me from the story too much. No, the movie wasn't like, hey, look at this. This is a known person. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just like, hey, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a guy. And I don't think he's done any other acting. That's it. That's all he's done. That's why it's even more of a strange thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he was fine. I actually think there's a great use of color in this as well. Like, it uses pastel colors in an interesting way. The color of the sky and the water. I just love that that aqua greeny blue that they use. Uh, I think mm. it makes it feel old, which is probably what they're going for. That's It's like old, but not sepia. It was just like this pastel overlay, which I kind of liked. I think it was worth noting. I have a note here, and I remember being really struck by... I wrote down, I've always liked watching dogfights in war movies. And I was thinking about why. And I think it's because, again, being in an airplane... It's sort of separated from the conflict. Yes. It's not personal, I guess. But separated even by sound. So all you can hear is that plane engine and maybe the machine gun. Yeah. You know? And I think I find that engine sound calming, which mm. is weird. And just the way that those scenes were filmed with, like, the flying scenes, I remember thinking to myself, I'd love to be able to fly to move like that. Mm. Which for me, like, I'm very okay with my feet planted firmly on the ground. You know, or in a commercial jetliner that someone else is flying who's competent. But like, you're I've saying never... just by watching them gracefully move around in the sky kind of made you like, oh, that's that's a cool feeling. Yeah. Interesting. That that I found really interesting because it's a war movie with yeah. fighter planes. You know what I mean? Like, that wasn't something I expected to ever feel But it's filmed in a very graceful way, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. It just, the whole feeling... Like, the whole feeling of being in there, for some people, could be really claustrophobic and overwhelming. And I think, for me, generally, as someone with anxiety, that's what I would have expected. But being compressed in there with this sound and kind of removed from the world, for whatever reason, actually made me feel really comfortable, you know? Yeah. And you're focused very specifically on, like, one thing. You know what I actually think is... The best part of this movie, the thing that I think is, like, 
the epitome of that I enjoy the most is watching Tom Hardy's character toward the end. That mm-hmm. just makes me feel more glee than than watching the civilians rock up at Den- Dunkirk and saving the soldiers, which which obviously that's there. But mm-hmm. that Tom Hardy ending is one of the most graceful scenes that I've seen in a war movie. It's mm. it probably my favorite part, um, and I think it's a symbol of the whole movie because the whole movie is always the combat's always in the forefront, right? You've always got that in the back of your mind where you could be attacked or killed at any point. But mm. towards there, like you've got that awesome juxtaposition between Tom Hardy's stalled plane which is just silently coasting over the whole beach. And you've got the roar of the soldiers cheering him on in the background. That Mm. just makes me gleeful. And even when there's even one last plane that comes in, the Germans, and you can just hear that like ominous roaring, and he gets Mm. shot down because he didn't know that Tom Hardy was there because he was also silent. And just that the way that that's all constructed, I just think that's my favorite part of the whole thing. That howling of the Spitfires is just crazy to watch. And the fact that they didn't he didn't even hear him because his his plane was stalled. That whole character just like he just kept trying and trying and pushing. He's like kept looking at his fuel and he just he had to get one last fight in there, one last fight, right to the end where he uh he gets taken and I loved the conclusion of that whole character. Mm. I was wondering whether that was just artistic license or do you think that stalled plane actually happened? I would imagine it would. No, I mean with this particular event. Oh, probably not. Okay. I think that he was just wanting to try to show the main story points so the main beats would be true. Yeah. But then he used his own sort of... Like there's the whole um, civilian picking up the soldiers who are covered in oil. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. true, but those events probably would have happened at some point, um, and Mm. he's just compiling them all into a story. Movie magic. Another thing I think is worth noting is the fact that, like, Tom Hardy's performance in this is really... Subtle. ...unique. It is, because he pretty much the whole time he's on screen, you can only see his eyes. Yeah. That's actually a good point, because you can tell a lot just from looking at someone's eyes. But I think also it's... A testament to the actor because you usually have like your whole face to work with to express emotion so like i think it would have made his job a little bit harder the fact that you could only see what's that a quarter of his face yeah a very expressive quarter sure but like you're not getting to use like All you have to be very nuances of your yeah face. yeah and you're not getting to use body language even in the same way well, it's kind of like a running joke with Tom Hardy and his performances because he's always sort of covering up his face. He did the same thing in Dark Knight Rises where he had his mouth covered up. You could only see his eyes. Mm. Um, parts of Mad Max Fury Road and then he's in that Venom movie. There's a lot where he's just always covering up parts of his face. Um, mm-hmm. So I think he's very good at showing those expressions because I had a pretty good idea as to what this character what their motivations were and what their values were just from looking at his eyes and the way he went about scenes. So I think he's he's definitely learnt that as a skill over his well, career. Even, he didn't have a ton of dialogue even. Yeah. You know, like it was really it was really interesting to watch because it was almost like, why do you need this character here? Yet he was essential to 
the telling of the story, even though he didn't have much to say or physically with his body do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He did a lot, um, but not, you know, in the traditional way that an actor would act. It's like, I was going to say, it's almost like if a whole movie took place in a car, but even then you have more range. Which Tom Hardy's also done. Has he? Um, in the movie Locke, the entire movie is him driving to London and he's on the phone hmm. the entire movie. And it's really exhilarating, just like listening to him on the phone. Hmm. Nifty. I really do love Tom Hardy. <laughs> I do as well. He's pretty great. I think he's pretty great. And I think he was a good pick for that character. Yeah. It's interesting that everything that happens to Tom Hardy's character happens in an hour. Everyone else has a day or a week to show what happens to them. But yeah. everything that's like that's I think that's what the point of his character was, is to show that he's always on his toes. He's only got this amount of time because he, that's the fuel that he's got. You know what I mean? Well, I really liked it. I have said this before about Nolan movies where I think they're brilliant. I really do enjoy them, but I never really have the the drive to watch more than like twice. You know, I've seen yeah. this one twice. I'd be good not to watch it again. You know what I mean? A lot of it, because some of them are heavy, like I don't want to just chuck on Interstellar or Inception or anything like that. Yeah. So it's interesting that I can completely see that they're masterpieces, but I have no interest in watching them again. And that's kind of the feel of Nolan. I think the entertainment industry and the movie industry is interesting because we spend millions and millions of dollars on a thing that really someone might only consume once. Yeah, for two hours. You know what I mean? Like... It's just interesting that we put that much work into it. Yeah. Yeah. Spend a lot of money yeah. entertaining ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've said this before that I honestly think, despite saying that, that Nolan is the best working director today. Oh, and yeah. That's a that's a big statement. But if you don't think so, I don't think you're looking hard enough. Because if you really break down the way he approaches things, he's on another level. He really is. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like because of how many hard hitters he's got in his filmography and he's got this Tenant movie coming out, which seems to be tackling big concepts and things, this one could be one that's like missed in his filmography by the end of his career, kind of like Insomnia was, I guess, um, mm. even though it's got Robin Williams and Al Pacino and Hilary Swank. Uh, I had never heard of it, you know, so maybe 10, 20 years from now, I feel like this one has the potential to be missed. Dunkirk. Yeah. Yeah. It'll always have the fact that it's a war movie going for it. Yeah, and a true story. So I think it yeah. might be held in higher regards with the English people because mm. there's a lot of people involved story. in stuff. Yeah. We have been Danielle and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on all the socials. We're most active on Instagram. And you can also follow us on Facebook, SoundCloud, or YouTube, or support us on Patreon. And until next time, thanks for listening.